Listen as Drs. Dan Hart from Barts and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry in London and Johnny Malangu from the University of the Witwatersrand in South Africa discuss gene therapy as a global solution. This podcast is part of a comprehensive educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia. Visit www.genetherapy.ish.org for more information. Johnny, thanks so much for joining us on this uh, ISTH Gene Therapy podcast. Uh, gene therapy is a global solution in haemophilia care. Um, I suppose that, that there should be a, a question mark at the end of that uh, title, and uh, I suppose that's exactly why we're here to, to talk about this subject. Um, I wonder maybe just to, to kick off, whether I could just ask you to kind of give us a feel of your practice in South Africa, in Johannesburg, and then I suppose the wider network of, of centres that you work with. I suppose that evolution of, of care in this extraordinary period of landscape change for haemophilia that you've been involved in with, with so many of the kind of clinical trial platforms coming through. Thank you, Dan, and welcome everyone uh, to this ISTH Gene Therapy podcast. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll be very brief. Uh, we've been particularly lucky in that uh, we actually are involved in an extremely exciting uh, eras of uh, evolution of therapies in hemophilia. Our center, uh, in fact, uh, started off with uh, the use of uh, blood and blood products uh, predominantly uh, and then we rapidly moved uh, towards the uh, recombinant products and then the extended half-life products um, and more recently of course the uh, non-factor therapies and gene therapy. So, so it's been quite a, a, an exciting era and certainly one that is very fulfilling in many ways. Uh, as you, you know, that the standard uh, therapies, as in replacement therapy, have got certain limitations. Uh, they are not always effective uh, and sometimes, in fact, uh, do not seem to be halting the progression of uh, hemophilia disease. And they come, of course, with the burden of complications such as immunogenicity. So it's been a, a very exciting era, and certainly some of us have find uh, the era very much uh, you know, fulfilling in terms of exposing ourselves to the new technologies, but more importantly, making sure that our patients benefit. Uh, we are in a low middle income country, South Africa, and the reality is that, in fact, uh, unfortunately, there aren't many centers like ours, uh, certainly not in, in our region. So uh, we, we are trying hard to get on board our colleagues that uh, are missing out on these opportunities. Uh, talking about that, we, we do have a view as to how we should actually be exposing and, and, and making these therapies accessible to our patients. Uh, and the one model that you, you are very much familiar with is the hub and spoke model that uh, the European community has adopted. Uh, we see no reason why we shouldn't go that route. But of course, you do need uh, energetic individuals, individuals that uh, are able to see uh, patient uh, benefits out of clinical trials. Uh, I don't have to tell you that in fact, clinical trials are hard work, but uh, they, are, they are at the same time extremely, extremely fulfilling. 
And, and thinking about your clinical trial activity then, two questions. I mean, has the evolution of, of your practice been kind of primed by clinical trial involvement that, and kind of, I suppose, demonstrating benefit to you, both your patients, families, and, and, and maybe commissioners? And, and secondly, the community, I suppose, the patient advocacy community, do people then ask to travel significant distances in South Africa to access your care and your the opportunities from clinical trial activity that may then be a, a surrogate marker of what, what might happen if gene therapy were to, to be commissioned uh, after regulatory approval? Yeah, uh, perhaps uh, it, it is to some extent, I think, a philosophical question. Uh, and I always tell my team here in Johannesburg and, and everyone I come across that we, we engage in clinical trials uh, for two reasons. One is only if the patients benefit out of the clinical trial. And, and that is probably the most important reason. And the second reason is uh, I'm an academic uh, and I would like to see generation of new knowledge. Uh, if we're able to fulfill uh, those two, in fact, we actually get to do the trial uh, in many instances. Uh, On to your second question around uh, not to what extent are we able to reach the hemophilia population. Now, South Africa is a very, very big country with uh, nine provinces. We currently have uh, in the region of about 23 hemophilia treatment centers, and six of those are comprehensive treatment centers as defined by the WFH. Uh, And in fact, we we found that our center actually services more than half the provinces, uh, partly because many of the provinces do not have comprehensive treatment centers, but more importantly, uh, even if they do have treatment centers, some of those treatment centers uh, actually have not had the opportunity to participate in clinical trials and have the experience. In fact, as part of my important goal at this stage is to hold hands to my colleagues uh, who want to participate in clinical trials. But we do drain quite, uh, I mean, the the longest patient that I'm looking after, for example, uh, this morning I saw a, a patient who's coming from Lesotho which is a small country within South Africa uh, who's actually got a, a hemophilia A and who is going to undergo uh, arthroplasties. Uh, and to me, that is actually uh, probably the longest. Uh, and, and the majority of the patients actually don't travel long distances because Johannesburg is actually a very cosmopolitan uh, environment. And so, interesting, you, you raised that issue, of, I suppose, of cross-boundary um, care or cross-national boundary care or, or indeed re- regional care. Do you think um, there are models there, either the, uh, pre-existing agreements with neighbouring countries within your continent that for complex care that the patients do move between countries or, 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 or regions? Um, that I suppose... Complex hemophilia care, if we assume that, I mean, gene therapy is paradoxically easy to give, but complex to, to commission and to, to micromanage afterwards. But, I mean, do you foresee e- even that kind of model uh, happening within the African continent of, of potential cross-boundary referral? Certainly. Um, in fact, um, my, my impression is that the, the cross-boundary, uh, cross-country collaboration has been in existence for some time for many disease areas. As an example, and I'm sure you are also trained in oncology, um, you know, for at least five of our neighboring countries, they did not have uh, centers 
of excellence in, in oncology. I'm talking here about Namibia, Botswana, Lesotho, Mozambique, uh, Zimbabwe. Uh, all of those countries, in fact, would bring their patients between uh, the center where they are diagnosed to uh, our country, either in Johannesburg or Pretoria or Cape Town, where they will be treated. And this was by arrangement between governments. And I'm seeing hemophilia care following the same route. And of course, we know that the volumes are much smaller, but it makes more sense for uh, the same routes to be used in the referral of patients with hemophilia. Just as an example, in fact, in, in 10 days, I'll be visiting Botswana. Uh, part of the mission there is obviously to introduce the new therapies. But more importantly, I'm hoping that I'll be able to uh, encourage the doctors who are there to come and train with us so that we can share the expertise and the skills and the knowledge uh, for them to be able to take it back. And what is currently happening is that they refer every patient to us for management, uh, and then we refer the patients back. So, so that, that kind of referral is already in place, and it, and it just needs to be strengthened in both ways. Some of my experience, uh, limited experience in Bangladesh with our, our WFH twinning program was interesting when I first started to work there, that they were keen to set up a bone marrow transplant unit uh, at a time where actually at the kind of the rudimentary laboratory side, they were, you know, only just getting to a kind of a, a, a more basic delivery of APTT, PT, kind of a, a quality assured assay level. But so there was this kind of divergence of ambition versus delivery. And I, I just wonder with whether tall poppies like gene therapy, like bone marrow transplantation enable the rest of the service to fit in behind it and be included in those where governments take notice of big things like gene therapy and bone marrow transplantation. Because what I've noticed in Bangladesh is actually that, that their more comprehensive care of haemophilia has really come on. And it was actually because the bone marrow transplant unit got government visibility and they were able to then develop behind it. And, and do you think that's something we should be mindful of as these conversations start? Actually, how can we kind of fill in some of those comprehensive care gaps that will be necessary downstream as well. Absolutely. Um, I mean, in, in a, in a resource-constrained environment, one needs to be strategic on how you bring on board um, the new services. Uh, and, and the one very well-proven, successful way is to build on existing services uh, and also to leverage on what the country is already able to do. I mean, just to give you an example, um, if you move around in many African countries, they've got a very nice, well-established blood transfusion service. And what we normally do is we go and uh, form a nice, strong link with the transfusion service. And the idea behind that is that uh, if one is able to support the transfusion service, it's easier to bring on board uh, you know, services that are required by patients with hemophilia. And, and in fact, as a result of that uh, leverage, uh, we've been able to identify a number of disease areas that uh, talk to each other. I mean, as an example, malaria um, is quite prevalent in the SADC region, for example. Uh, and there are programs, what we call outreach programs, where government have actually put up infrastructure to go and uh, combat malaria. And, and what we do is we twin with those uh, and actually start visiting patients at their homes. And the same with sickle cell. As you know, the sickle cell gene in our part of the world, certainly in, in the middle um, uh, of Africa, is quite prevalent. 
and, and uh, we make use of the resources that are already in place to be able to advance the objectives of, of diseases such as uh, haemophilia. And then, I suppose, thinking about that that outreach and thinking about the outreach of the World Federation Humanitarian Aid Programme, in, in that, that stepping stone of, of humanitarian aid demonstrating value to governments, um, do you think there's ever going to be a, a kind of humanitarian aid of gene therapy? Do you, do you foresee that? I mean, is it, have you ever had a conversation uh, about that, given many of these uh, countries in the World Federation Programme have got access to EHLs, have got access to, to emesizumab? And is there, is there any conflict there as well, I suppose? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's a very critical question. Um, I, 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 initially, I, I thought that, in fact, uh, uh, in my own mind at least, uh, th- there was no reason why there shouldn't be a humanitarian aid approach to gene therapy. Just like currently we have, for example, uh, non-factor therapy humanitarian aid, we've got um, extended half-life product humanitarian aid and and many others. Personally, I think that in fact, just for it to be a humanitarian aid doesn't necessarily mean that it it can be implemented. And and in fact, just speaking directly to your question, yes, there are companies that are currently uh, pursuing exactly that. They they are looking for low-middle-income countries uh, where they have actually generated enough product to be able to allow them to be used in that setting uh, in order to benefit the individuals. Um, and of course, one needs to get the balance right um, that you know one is not conflicted, but ultimately it boils down to the patients benefiting out of that interaction. And I'm, I'm all in favor of it, obviously, as long as ultimately the beneficiary being the patient uh, is kept in mind all the time. Yeah. And I suppose in the UK, sometimes we've had, um, because we commission nationally for all our, our haemophilia care and, and, and therapeutics, there's sometimes been some concern that getting involved in clinical trials for something that may come with a premium price when and if it's regulatory approved and, and launched, whether the patients will have access or not. And I suppose one of our final questions would be whether, you know, we recognise there are quite substantial price disparities between even parts of Europe in buying clotting factor concentrates. Should we anticipate that, that those disparities almost, they have to exist for gene therapy for it to become globally accessible as, a, as, a, as an intervention? And clearly the prices that are being talked about maybe fit particularly wealthy socialised, well, arguably non-socialised medicine systems, insurance-based systems, and that those with socialised medicine and or kind of more kind of lower middle income health services will need to have a different pricing structure. Certainly. I mean, the, the World Health Organization is certainly pushing for each country to have universal health care. And many countries in Africa, and certainly in South Africa, we, we are moving in that direction. Uh, we're not obviously at a, a level of NHS in the UK, but we are moving in that direction. And my feeling is that um, you know, initially when we start off, the discrepancies will be huge. But over time, as uh, more and more resources are brought uh, into the healthcare delivery system, uh, those discrepancies will start to narrow. And I would hate a scenario where uh, we go very far in narrowing the discrepancies, but actually we have not brought in the technologies that uh, we should have actually embraced and used and be familiar with at a time when, in fact, we are already at a point 
point where we're able to deliver to our patients. So that's one of the motivations, in fact, you know, some of us have that uh, we do need the exposure, we do need the experience, uh, apart, of course, from benefiting the patients to be able to say that I can use this product um, when the time comes, when the resources are available, and in fact, it is available to my patients. Yeah. And I suppose a, a, a final question about the balance of the, the narrative at the moment and the discussions in, in multiple different, I'm fully aware this is a gene therapy focused podcast, but I suppose, I mean, are there kind of limitations to this kind of version 1.0 approach to gene therapy and supplementary question i mean do you think we're giving a disproportionate amount of time thinking about gene therapy which ultimately in the the short term will benefit very few when actually the global issue for hemophilia is is hundreds of thousands not just hundreds yeah it's a very difficult balance to get right um i mean whilst it's true that uh, gene therapy will probably not benefit 100% of the hemophilia population it is but also true that as it is evolving we should be paying particular close attention to it to allow it to be able to ultimately evolve into a space where it can actually benefit the majority of the patients. I mean, uh, just take uh, as an example, you know, in, in our community, we deal with patients with inhibitors. And we do pay a lot of attention to those patients, but we're not, we're not in any way disadvantaging those without inhibitors. We still look after them. We certainly do pay attention to the appropriate uh, complications, etc., that is associated with uh, the disease and the treatment. So I-, I think, in fact, it's just a matter of time before that perspective evolves on its own. But because gene therapy has got the potential for being a one-time, uh, potentially curable therapy, um, uh, curative therapy, it, it is the reason why we may be seen to be paying a lot of attention to it. But uh, personally, I think that we, we're probably paying appropriate attention for it to evolve into the next stage. And really, I suppose, to set the bar high for expectation, not just for those that we perceive can pay for a high bar, but, but a global high bar, and then everyone edges towards um, improvement in, in care for their, both their prophylaxis and, 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 and trauma and surgery treatment for the haemophilia they live with. Um, absolutely, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, it, it is a, a piece in the puzzle. And, and my impression is um, that we're probably going to look at the whole picture over time, but it is important for that missing piece to be in the right place. And, and that's what we're doing with the gene therapy. Listen, Charlie, that's been a, a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Um, and thank you so much for also all you've done for the community in terms of the effort and hard work behind the scenes for so many of those platforms coming through. Um, great to see. Thank you very much, Dan. And thanks to ISTH uh, for this conversation. And we'll meet again another time. Earn your CME credit by clicking the link for credit. Check back for more podcasts on gene therapy and hemophilia. Additional education is available on www.genetherapy.isth.org, an educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia.